0: to the best of Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio.
1: Welcome to Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio. Keeping you connected to your faith and your world. Teresa tackles the issues of faith and culture, the pro-life message and media awareness. And now here's Teresa Tamio. Thanks for tuning into Catholic Connection. Great to catch up again with Father Bart Tolson. Now Father Bart was on with us more than once in the movie starring Mark Wahlberg as a main character, Father Stuke was released. I loved that film. I thought it was great. I thought it was very raw, yes, but it was very real as well in terms of what a young man went through and his path to the priesthood and just all over different experiences and thinking he was going to do this and thinking this is going to happen and when he finally submits and then he gets struck with a very serious illness but still is able to use that suffering for the glory of God. So the book is published by Ignatius Press and as I said earlier I was very honored to be one of the endorsers of this wonderful book. Ignatius published my book Extreme Makeover and they do a great job of publishing these types of books that really dive into the lives of people that are out there now making a difference, and and Father Stu is still making a difference after he's gone to be with the Lord. Father Bart, thanks for joining us. Let's go back uh, to the beginning. How did you meet Father Stu?
0: I met Father Stu via email because I was in the process of moving from Texas up to Montana, and I wanted to meet a seminarian because I was a seminarian for Dallas at the time who was part of the Helena Diocese. so I got uh, Stu's email. We started an email correspondence. And then uh, when I finally moved up here permanently, we got to meet face-to-face and kind of hit it off right away.
1: In terms of, of his personality, you talk about this in the book in terms of he was a practical joker. You know, he he had a real interesting personality. What a, what was it, do you think, that, that formed that bond between the two of you, in addition, obviously, to your love of the Lord and your desire to be a priest?
0: Right. Well, we both had had life experience before, you know, getting to become uh, seminarians and moving on to the priesthood. So we had a kind of a different take on life, uh, you know, outside of, of that. We were both Catholic converts, so we appreciated coming together that way. We also saw our faith in a similar way. I think, you know, the, the beauty and the glory of the Catholic faith, but also the importance of living it out practically in your life and not just letting it be some kind of pie-in-the-sky dream like that. And then also, we both have really bad senses of humor, so we really connected that way well.
1: So you were ordained together, correct?
0: We were, yeah. So uh, Bishop Thomas had delayed me just a little bit when I came as a seminarian for Helena, so I could kind of settle more into a new diocese, and uh, Stu, of course, because of his disease, and they were trying to figure out if they were going to ordain him or not. And then when Bishop made the decision to ordain us, he said, well, we'll ordain you together. And uh, our anniversary is actually next week, 16 years, next week, December 14th.
1: Wow. So when you decided to sit down and and write the book, I mean, as a fellow author, I know you go through a lot of prayer and discernment, but what was the main message? Because the title is interesting. That was Father Stu, a memoir of my priestly brother and friend. What was on your heart when you sat down to to write this?
0: Well, the first is I didn't think it was going to be a movie because it had gotten Stuck in what we call, you know, development, endless development, and it looked like it was not going to happen. So I was like, we got to make sure we get. I got to get my memories, my stories down. So I did a kind of a very first, very rough draft of the book, and then when the movie was announced, kind of went back to it and reshaped it and it, it extended it. But I think the primary purpose is just Stu just gave people hope, uh, and it, you know that supernatural virtue that when you're struggling, when there's a trial. Uh, nothing is too tall for God's hope. And Stu lives that out. So people couldn't argue with him. Because if you argue with Stu about hope, you're you're looking at someone who has hope, yet he's in a wheelchair and he's dying. And he's still joyful. And so I think people need that hope maybe more than ever.
1: Are you seeing this as a priest? That was my next question. We were talking about this during the break. I think this idea of suffering, the world is really struggling with it, especially now the pandemic has been over now. Thanks be to God for for a while, but people I think are still struggling with everything that happened and things that are happening in the world in terms of great suffering.
0: It just seems like since the pandemic there's just been this uncorking of of suffering in just so many different ways. I mean there's always been suffering, but so many people just have these new trials, these new crosses, and these are opportunities to draw closer to our Lord uh, in his own suffering and to really use our sufferings as prayer. That's one thing Stu did. He offered his sufferings as a form of prayer. And I'm trying to encourage people not to just wallow in your suffering, but if the Lord decides not to take it away, that we can ask him to do that, that in some way you would be able to offer that willingly and lovingly as prayer to bring hope and redemption into the world.
1: The book is filled with not just great stories and background about your meeting and your friendship and Father Stu's life, but you also have a section of photographs. Why did you decide to include that?
0: Oh, I think I know when I read a book and you're you're trying to image what people are like, what they look like, and I think uh photographs always help kind of say this is real. You know, here's a picture of the real Stuart Long, here's a picture of the people that were in his life that you read about in the book. And I think that helps really connect it and say, you know, this is not just a fantasy, this is a real story.
1: And then you have a picture of the ordination December fourteenth, two thousand and seven. That is really beautiful.
0: It was a special day it was it was in some ways it was a day of struggle um you know it was Stu you know was struggling even during the ordination and you know that that one photo of uh you know of Stu saying, you know you put your head down when we're 'cause he couldn't do it, and he said it'll all work out well, and little did I know that would be the cover of a book about him
2: Wow. You know, so
0: wow. many years later.
1: We're talking with Father Bart Tolson, who's the author of this beautiful book dedicated and all about his dear friend, Father Stu. You remember the movie that came out recently with Mark Wahlberg playing such an excellent, I mean, I thought he did such a great job of playing the character of Father Stu, the main character. And, of course, Father Bart uh, was ordained with Father Stu, their anniversary, coming up on December 14th. And you were ordained again in 2007, and you have quite a background now. You have served as a parochial vicar, administrator, and pastor for various parishes in the Diocese of Helena, Montana. Do you feel that when you were writing this book, did you feel, Father, that Stu was with you, that you still have that, that friendship with him?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I feel like he was, I mean, there was. it took a long time. There was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, things to pull together, a lot of suffering, a lot of extra hours late nights, early mornings, sometimes in the midst of a busy, you know, priestly ministry. But Stu was always, I mean, it's just like he was right next to me just pushing me, saying, you know, you've got to do this. You've got to tell this story. You know, God's going to help you. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to be with you, you know. But this needs to get out there for the greater glory of God. And so I felt like he really kind of called me to it. In fact, I, had, I shared in the book a dream where Stu basically told me to tell the story. Wow. And, uh, so that's what I tried to do.
1: So when did that dream occur? Tell us a little bit more about that.
0: That The dream occurred the first time, I think it was a couple of years after Sue died, and it was kind of a strange thing. I was like, that was weird. And then I actually had it a second time. And I think when I had it the second time, it was like, I've got to do something with this. So it's not just enough to kind of remember Sue and talk about him from time to time in a homily, but to do something more concrete and You know, little did I know that that there would be a published book uh, from Ignatius Press about Stu. I mean, at that point, I thought it might be some sort of local thing. You know, Mm -hmm. so but you know, it's it's just God's uh, glory and mercy working through whatever He needs to do to to let people know about Stu and uh, what God did in His own life.
1: We're talking with Father Bart Tolson, who wrote this beautiful book about his friend Father Stu. The title is "That Was Father Stu." Recently released from our friends at Ignatius Press. Of course, we'll put the links up at Catholic Connection in our archive section. All right. So let's talk a little bit about his the the interesting long and winding road, as the Beatles would say, to get to to him to to him becoming a priest. Because if you look at his background, he wanted to be an actor. He was a boxer. He was an athlete, and he even fell in love at one point, And then he just then God brought him to this point where No, you're going to be coming into the priesthood. It's interesting because recently in the news, I don't know if you've heard these stories, but I was just talking about this uh, on the air, about two people, two very prominent people, one in the Latin American culture who's a top Latin American singer in this Latin music genre, hugely successful, but recently announced that he's giving it all up so he can do evangelization, use his music to evangelize about Jesus. And an Italian young man who was voted the most beautiful man in Italy back in 2019 And now he's in the seminary. And you look at these guys and you see the fact that they already had a certain amount of success, but God took them in a totally different direction. Not too much unlike, of course, Father Stu, because even though he didn't have success in acting, he really was talented as an athlete, but God, again, took his life in a totally different direction as well.
0: Yes. I mean, I I say there are only two things Stu was successful at. One was being a priest, very successful at that. Number two was being a bouncer. Um, he never <laughs> failed as a bouncer. So, you know, he was kind of a bouncer for Christ because he would bounce you into the kingdom. Um, he would use hard words if he needed hard words. He would use gentle words if that's what it took. And he had a really keen sense of what it was going to take to challenge you to make you uncomfortable to move closer to Christ. And so that, that kind of fierceness in him and also that wisdom in him, because bouncers actually have to have a lot of wisdom, too, in doing their job. Uh, Stu put into to action in his ministry, which is, I think, why so many people like to go to him because as a priest, he was on limited time. I mean, he said, I have to make every day count. I, I mean, I'm not, I can't take a break because that's one less day that I have that I can do service to God. And that's the thing for all of us. It's like we've got to make every day count. We can't just put it off till tomorrow because right. we may not have tomorrow. And one of the messages of, of Stu's ministry is that make every day count. Don't put it off. Come closer to Christ, however you need to.
1: And I think, too, with his own life, as you said early, earlier in the interview, Father, that people really couldn't argue with him because even if they came from, let's say, their own rough-and-tumble backgrounds so or they had a lot of sin or certain types of sin, he understood that, right? But also he understood suffering in so many ways and sacrifice because he walked away from what he thought was going to be his life. He gave up a, a relationship with a beautiful girl. He gave up uh, you know, going into athletics or going into acting. To become to follow the Lord and to become a priest where he was truly and and fully happy and satisfied but you you can't sit there and talk to someone like that and say you don't understand how I feel
0: no and I think God it wasn't just giving up I think God allowed him to fail in these different things uh, you know to kind of fail in love to to fail in acting so that so that he could be moved in humility toward the very thing God wanted him to do with his life and you know, people are always saying, well, I failed at that, or that wasn't good enough. And, and I was like, well, maybe God allowed that to happen so you can move closer to where he really wants you. Because uh, as Stu taught me, God's plans are always better than our plans.
2: Absolutely. And, you know,
0: on the surface, no one would want Stu to be sick or in a wheelchair. But in another way, he never would have been who he was if God hadn't have allowed that uh, cross in his own life. But so it was transformative, not just for Stu, but for everyone who met him.
1: Yeah. In addition to his background as a professional boxer and, and you know, doing some, some athletics and also trying out for acting, his talents, do you think his talents in terms of that strength, that physical strength that, that he once had and that spiritual strength, God used that as well, correct?
0: Certainly. You know, I mean, even when you talk to Steve from his wheelchair, he still felt like he could take you down. I mean, you know, there was, there was a certain this of, of of strength, though his body had no strength. Uh, it was still there and it's such an interesting thing. Uh, when I meet other people like that too, that whatever their bodies are failing, there's still a certain grace or strength that God has provided them with. And, uh, you know, I think the Lord allows us to hold on to that, uh, because he, he keeps us who we are. He just transforms us into who we were meant to be.
1: At the end of the day, now that the book's out, any, like, final, um, final thoughts? We have about a minute left, Father, regarding what you'd like people to take away from this book about your friend, Father Stu.
0: You know, there's so many things to take away from Stu's life. So part of me is just like, you know, if you're able to read the book or listen to it, uh, take away what's what needed for you. Let God work uh, through Stu's story into your heart, into your soul, and uh, move forward. And, and, you know, let this be a movement of God to bring people to Jesus uh, in a a greater fullness, a greater love, and hope. Hope is so important right now, to just give people hope. And that was Stu's primary message.
1: Yeah, because the thing is, right now, we just had a report that came out just recently that, that suicides are the highest they've been, Father, since the 1940s, if you can believe that. And a lot of it has to do with loneliness. A lot of it has to do with us pushing God, and mainly, I think, pushing God out of our lives. And what a message, and suffering as well, but what a message from Father Stu because he covers all of those topics, as do you and your relationship with him and the Lord in this beautiful book. That was Father Stu, a, a memoir of my priestly brother and friend. It's published by Ignatius Press, by our friend Father Bart Tolson. Thank you so much for getting up early in Helena, Montana for us. And we're going to spread the news about this book far and wide. I was proud to endorse it. It's really well done, published by our friends at Ignatius Press. Again, the book is That Was Father Stew. We'll be right back.
0: People ask how they can care for older family members who can't fully care for themselves. One answer is Visiting Angels, America's choice in senior home care. Visiting Angels assists adults nationwide with 600 locations to continue living at home and not have to move into a nursing home. Their caregivers provide assistance in hygiene, meals, and light housework. Services are provided up to 24 hours per day, and you can select your caregiver before service begins. More information, including franchise opportunities, is on the web at visitingangels.com. In a Facebook world, we can multiply
3: virtual friends, and yet psychologists and sociologists tell us we have fewer and fewer actual friends. This is not good. We're made for friendships. Friendship with God, first of all, but secondarily, friendship with other human beings. Jesus calls his apostles friends. And when he faces his greatest suffering, he asks his inner circle of friends to come and pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They come, but they fall asleep. Jesus isn't crushed when his friends fail to live up to his expectations. He doesn't withhold his love from them. He doesn't cast them away, nor does he suffer their neglect silently. He confronts them. Couldn't you have prayed with me for an hour? Then he moves on to do the will of his Father in heaven. When friends let us down, as they will, we should follow the example of Jesus, lovingly confront them, but remember that they can never substitute for God who stands
0: ready as our ultimate friend. Cresta in the Afternoon, weekdays at 4 Eastern on EWTN Radio. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? With Teresa Tamia.
1: This article was posted on December 4th, and it's all about the anniversary. That was the actual day, 60th anniversary of a document that I don't think too many of us have read, unfortunately. And I hope people, after reading Father Thomas's beautiful commentary and also hearing this interview, will change that and look it up online Vatican II's Inter Marificia. The decree on the mass media. 60 years later, Father Joseph Thomas is our guest again. The story was posted on the Register earlier this month, and we'll put a link to it on our Facebook page and also at the archive section for Catholic Connection. Father Joseph is an Opus Dei priest. He's also the chaplain at Mercer House in Princeton, New Jersey, working closely with people and helping them grow in their faith and. Father, what attracted you, first of all, to Intermarifica? Why did you decide to do a commentary on it? I really enjoyed your commentary, by the way. Thanks for joining us.
2: You're welcome. Thank you, Teresa, for having me on. Um, yeah, my, uh, yeah I, I'm involved in studying and teaching theology and writing about theology, but I have to say my interest in this is not simply theological or theoretical. I mean, the mass media can cover a lot of things can include movies, TV, and along with a lot of other forms of media. I mean, it's an issue that faces us on a daily basis, and Mm -hmm. I'm a priest, I'm very involved in giving spiritual guidance to people. Um, One of the main things I do is speak to people about growing in their prayer life, but I often come again up against this issue of technology, and I think we realize a lot of sometimes the challenges that we face in um, living out our faith sometimes. Um, can be rooted in sort of the technology that we use on a daily basis, and um, and I think in that regard, Intermarifica has a lot of um, interesting things to tell us.
0: Yeah, yeah it's I agree. A short
2: document.
1: It's a very short document, and it's just frustrating to me that that not enough of us. And I'm always telling people to do this, but if they would just take the time to read it, I think they would be so pleasantly surprised, and I think encouraged as to how much. It is so. I mean, even though it was, it came out 60 years ago, December 4th, 1963, right? It's so timely, Father.
2: Absolutely. Um, and maybe let me, give, let me give you a little bit of context. You know, this is the first time in history that an ecumenical council is addressing the issue of mass communications. And if we, we, we can reflect on what that means. I mean, this is an ecumenical council, which is a very you know, special coming together of the Church in the Holy Spirit. So let to address the the pressing pressing issues you know facing the church at a given time. So, I think because of that, uh, this text is a very important reference point for us to keep in mind. And I think, first of all, I think there's um, I think what, what maybe most strikes me about the text and what one can gather from reading it is just the strong sense of the morality, mm-hmm. the, the moral sense that we have to apply when we when we. Uh, come to use the media. I mean, I find there there are a lot of people who can be very serious sometimes about you going to faith, living their faith, going to mass, living a life of prayer. But then when we come to the media, the topic of intermarifica, you know, know, a lot of people might just flip on the TV, uh, uh, just put on their headphones, and, you know, they're not exercising the same moral discretion. And I think intermarifica is a great invitation for us to use our faith, our our, our knowledge of the faith, when we are using the media.
1: Well, Father, I just want to read a couple of, I mean, there's so much. It's a short document, but this is just loaded, and this is something that I deal with and write about all the time. This is my area of expertise, and my very first book was all about the media. The first question, and this is under paragraph 5, the first question has to do with information, as it is called, or the search for and reporting of the news. Now, clearly, this has become most useful and very often necessary for the progress of contemporary society and for achieving closer links among men. The prompt publication of affairs and events provides every individual with a fuller, continuing acquaintance with them, and thus all can contribute more effectively to the common good and more readily promote and advance the welfare of the entire civil society. Therefore, In society, men have a right to information in accordance with the circumstances, in each case, about matters concerning individuals or the community. The proper exercise of this right demands, however, that the news itself that's communicated should always be true and complete within the bounds of justice and charity. In addition, the manner in which the news is communicated should be proper and decent. That means that in both the search for news and in reporting it, there must be full respect for the laws of morality and for legitimate rights and dignity of the individual. I, I mean, this right there, Father, you could spend like five, six, seven articles on just that paragraph because, unfortunately, if we look at the secular media today, for the most part, that's gone, what the Vatican is saying is necessary.
2: No, absolutely. You know, you could, uh, we could uh, you know, just, th- with that sentence or other sentences you could just draw out a lot. And with this article, I just wanted to draw a little bit of attention to this. This is an issue which we need to continually be reflecting on. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, oftentimes people don't, we don't think about that when we, when we use the media, we just turn on, we want to see the news. We want to be entertained. We might be looking to rest. And so I think uh, precisely because of that, intermerge is a great invitation for us to reflect more deeply on on the media we use and how we can use it in a, in a more fruitful way.
1: And also, there's this, Well, there's so much. But paragraph eight on public opinion: since public opinion exercises the greatest power and authority today in every sphere of life, both private and public, every member of society must fulfill the demands of justice and charity in this area. As a result, all must strive through these media as well, to form and spread sound public opinion. I mean, Father, I mean, if you look at this statement, right, you think about where we are in, you know, Twitter, now X world, or if you look at how everything goes viral in a nanosecond and how people are attacking each other and saying whatever they think they have to say and get off their chest or whatever reason, everybody's got a podcast. All of us have to take this very, very seriously because this has just gone crazy in terms of the media world.
2: Yeah, but I would also say that a lot of these same things that we're facing now – are things that people were very much facing in the 1960s you think about the explosion of media. And so I do think there is a a lot that that, uh, uh, Vatican II still has to tell us as we, of course, try to navigate these newer technologies.
1: Well, that's what I'm saying, though, because they address this. And so to me this is prophetic because Mm -hmm. knowing what they had then and they realize this is an issue and now seeing what we have, what they're saying, their concerns have come true.
2: Absolutely, and there's another point I wanted to make, um, Teresa, which is that um, I think if we look at this in the bigger picture, you know, just to situate of Marthica within like a history of the Church, um, there's a lot of people who might think that somehow Vatican II and the Council sort of watered down the teaching of the Church with, with regard to sort of morality or other issues. And I mean, certainly there was, was a change of emphasis, you know, say from the 16th century until just after Vatican II, we have in the Church something called like a index of forbidden books, you know, which is like an mm-hmm. attempt on the part of the Church to try to point out readings that might be harmful to the faithful, either because they have theological errors or um, because the books might be morally detrimental. You know, more recently, in the 20th century, you had you know, the Legion of Decency, which was not officially part of the Church, but had an important impact on, on sort of improving the moral quality of films for Catholic audiences and for audiences in general. I um, mean, all these things were, you know, the index was suppressed just after council, the Legion of Decency was reorganized after council, and shortly after that stopped its work, and maybe...
1: Oh, I think we lost father. Ah, Father Joseph disappeared. Okay, so we will, uh, leading up to the break, if you're just joining us on a Monday morning, it is December 18, 2023. We'll reconnect with Father during the break. 25 minutes past the hour. Take a look at this article. It was posted on December 4th on the actual anniversary of Mirifica, Vatican II's decree on the mass media 60 years later. Mirifica referring to wonderful things or wonderful technologies. And again, what I love about this is it reflects the church's understanding of balance the churches does it the church as father mentioned and we'll get back to it after the break does not say get rid of all the media media are bad don't use media no just the opposite the church recognizes the importance of media in evangelization but that there are ways to use it well and wisely not just for the media the people who are actually in, in the work of doing media but those who are consuming it all of us have a responsibility we'll be right back stay tuned Father Joseph Thomas on his beautiful article posted on the anniversary of Intermarifica. Sixty years later, the actual anniversary was December 4th, which was when the article was posted. We will have a link to it on the Catholic Connection Archive section. You can also look it up still, of course, on the National Catholic Register website, ncregister.com. I loved it because I love reading these documents that are, you know, this is 60 years old, but it's still so timely because, you know, truth is always timeless. And Father Joseph Thomas knows that. Opus Dei priest, chaplain at the Mercer House in Princeton, New Jersey, of course, works with parishioners and students, and very involved in teaching theology. So, Father, one of the things I love about this document and love about the church, the church is all about balance. It never swings way to one side or way to the other. The church is is about understanding there is a balance in life, and there's also a balance when using the media. The church doesn't say, all the media are bad, don't use it, warning, warning, Will Robin, danger approaching. No, the church says... We need to use the media. And I think it was Pope Paul VI who said around the same time that the church would be sorry before the Lord if she does not use the media to evangelize because the church recognizes that this is one of the best ways to reach people is through radio, you know, TV, and now we have, of course, all the things online. And so I love the fact that the church always talks about balance, but that we all have an individual responsibility, correct?
2: Yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the... Title of this document is you know, Intermarisica. It's among the wonderful, wonderful. technological right. discoveries. So there's mm-hmm. a real desire to, to place the media within just a Christian view of creation and as something God created good, and that's something that we have to uh, use. Something that's been raised up in Christ and that is an important means that we have. You know, at the same time, there's like this awareness that you know media is something very particular. It requires a certain particular expertise. It's not enough just to have the good desires to, um, to use the media that we have to understand the way the media works. And we need experts, journalists, and so forth um, who can really understand the media and use it in the proper way. And, of course, on the other hand, the, the, another, another important part of Intermarisica is that responsibility and the part, part of everybody, you know, the document speaks of parents, you know, the serious responsibility of parents, which is another thing I think we, is important to keep in mind, to uh, so that we all be able to use the media in a proper way, because it's not going to automatically lead to these wonderful things that we hope mm-hmm. for. Yeah.
1: And I think an important point, point. I was mentioning this after we lost you briefly on the phone going into the break, that yesterday, of course, the third week of Advent, the joyful Sunday, Gaudette Sunday, We heard a wonderful homily at my parish in the Archdiocese of Detroit, our priest talking about joy. You know, St. Paul telling us in that that reading from Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, for this is a will of uh, God the Father in Christ Jesus, that we have to rejoice always in all circumstances. And he said that joy is one of the greatest witnesses to the love of God, and it's important and you and I know this, and I've done a ton of research in this area, on garbage in, garbage out. If we're spending so much time on negativity on the media, that is going to affect us. And how are we going to reflect the joy of the Lord if we're only looking at the bad that's out there? What are your thoughts on that?
2: No, absolutely. I mean, yes, we can start just sort of thinking about, yeah, there's a bad. We know, you know, young people are exposed to things which are not so fruitful, and, you know, it has an effect on the way they act, the way they think way to be the Church, but let's turn that around, and I think uh, Intermaritica is an an invitation for us to turn it around, to use the means that we have to promote a true Christian view of life, uh, which includes joy, includes a sense of beauty, a sense of the moral good, and uh, there's a real sort of um, desire on the part of the Church uh, expressed through this document to sort of to help the faithful and help journalists sort of use this media to convey the, the true Christian sense of life. you mentioned that is Sunday. And uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's such a beautiful reminder during this time of year that we have that, you know, the Christian life is about joy. Um, and, uh, you know, we need to convey that. You know, sometimes people can try to give the impression that Christian and oftentimes in the media, it's present. we're presented with an idea that, you know, the Christian faith, is something kind of rigid and, uh, kind of negative and strict and authoritarian. Obviously, you know, those of us who live the faith know that's not the case, but we have to be able to express that to others.
1: Yeah, I mean, this, I think, is. it reminds me, because it's a short document, it reminds me of the short but very powerful World Communications Day statements that come out every year in January on the feast of St. Francis de Sales, who's a patron of, of journalism, mm-hmm. and of course it's, it's, it's celebrated in May. But these are nuggets that are super helpful, and it's super helpful, I think, Father, in so many ways, because it shows us that the Church is aware of what's going on in the world, and because this this wisdom, right, because our Lord founded the Church on, on the Rock, St. Peter, is coming from Him, all truth emanates from, from Christ. So the truth about the world and the media It's so evident that the church is is spot on on this, and it's so helpful, and yet so many people don't bother to read even these shorter documents or statements, which can really be great, I mean, for not just parents or or educators, but those of us who see the craziness out there and say, okay, I I, I want to be informed, but I don't know. What's a good source for me? How do I discern that? I mean, these documents are very helpful.
2: Absolutely, and I will say, you know, it's it's a document of a council, and it's not... I wouldn't say it's necessarily, you know, meant to be, you know, really oriented towards the general public. So I can understand why people maybe sometimes have a hard time reading it. Uh, it's, it's like a lot of content. So I'm, I'm really glad that, um, Teresa you know, on this show and other, moment, in other ways, we have opportunities to sort of kind of, kind of convey the you know, the key points and talk about the key points. Um, but certainly I, I do encourage people to, uh, read these documents because, yeah, they are fundamental texts. The, this and other texts of Vatican II really are kind of fundamental texts that we need to very much have in mind um, as members of the Church going forward in this particular time of our history.
1: Well, this particular document is pretty short uh, in orifica itself, and then also the World Communications Day Statement you can read in just a few minutes. So, those and, mm-hmm. and even something like I love, one of my favorites by John Paul II is The Rapid Development, where he's addressing what's happening and how fast the media are, are just developing new technologies. I, I thought that was, to me, I thought it was very readable. I don't have a theology degree, but I thought it was very readable.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what I would say is I think it's the type of thing we need to read, but it, there's just so much there, as you were saying earlier, that I really we need to kind of just stop and, and reflect. And, and reflect. Just, how does this affect me, you know? Like, uh, there's just, a, for example, the part where the um, in intermaritica where the um the, the council talks about exercising moderation and, and self control with regard to the media and then the duties of parents and have they who have to be vigilant regarding their children. I mean all this stuff, you know, really could even those just a few sentences could give rise to a whole debate and discussion and a whole reflection on the part of, of parents. So I do would encourage people to read it but then really reflect and yeah. think about these things.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's so much there, and again, this uh, intermarifica itself is very, very quick, and it says, those who make use of, this is paragraph 10, I think this is to what you were referring, those who make use of the media of communications, especially the young, should take steps to accustom themselves to moderation and self-control in their regard. They should, moreover, endeavor to deepen their understanding of what they see, hear, or read. They should discuss these matters with teachers and experts and learn to pass sound judgments on them. I'm just chuckling because this is just so evergreen, it's so true. Parents should remember that they have a most serious duty to guard carefully lest shows, publications, and other things of this sort which may be more morally harmful enter their homes or affect their children under other circumstances. Given the body of evidence we have in research on the damage that can be done to the media, the Church is always pointing us in the right direction in terms of balance and proper uses. And so does your article, Father. Thank you so much. Would we have more time? We were just talking with uh, Father Joseph Thomas about his beautiful piece, on the 40th anniversary of Inter Marifica. You can check it out online. We'll have a link to it. We'll be right back. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn.
0: Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does this strange Beatitude mean? Well, Father Victor Feltz points out that George Bailey, in It's a Wonderful Life, embodies this beatitude. He has to sacrifice his bucket list items and his dreams in order to save the building and loan company of Bedford Falls. But by the end of the movie, he realizes that he's truly the richest man in town. The beatitudes challenge our understanding of happiness, both as individuals and as a society. They're paradoxical, and they upend our priorities. We don't need anyone to tell us that good fortune, money, and success do often make us happy. But we wouldn't have thought that the road to riches in God's kingdom is paved with meekness. It doesn't mean denying your gifts, but it does challenge us to allow others to have the spotlight and to approach them with gentleness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth.
3: For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com.
0: Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo.
3: John 14, this is Jesus in the upper room with the disciples before he's going out to his sacrifice of himself for our salvation. And Philip says to the Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus looks at Philip and says, Philip, have I been with you all this time? Don't you understand? When you see me, you're looking at the Father. In fact, only two people throughout human history have given rise to the question, not who is he, but what is he? The two people are Buddha and Jesus. Buddha's answer was, don't come to me, don't look to me, look to my doctrine, look to what I teach. Jesus' answer was, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Jesus is explicitly claiming to be God.
2: Lisa Tamia.
1: Nine minutes past the hour. appreciate your listenership to EWTN's Global Catholic Radio Network and appreciate the support of all our affiliates around the country, well over 400 of them now. Thanks be to God. On the phone with us is Michael Vaca. He is the Director of Ministry, Bioethics, and Membership Experience. and He's a certified spiritual director and also a Catholic bioethicist. The Christ Medicus Foundation, a wonderful organization that is right on the front lines there standing up for life and the Catholic faith. So we're going to talk today about the Uniform Law Commission. So if you're not familiar, as I said at the top of the hour, according to their website, the Uniform Law Commission, also known as the National Conference of Commissioners on Uniform State Laws, was established all the way back in 1892, providing states with nonpartisan, well-conceived, according to them, and their website, well-drafted legislation that brings clarity and stability to critical areas of state statutory law. Now, Michael, what you're saying is you're seeing not so much a nonpartisan anymore, and very concerned about the Uniform Law Commission, as you say in your email to me, almost redefining death and expanding euthanasia. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. What are you seeing that's so concerning?
3: Thank you so much, Teresa. Uh, so, what's important for people to understand is that, you know, objectively, we know the church teaches that, you know, death is the separation of the soul from the body. No, the problem, of course, is that you can't see that. And so traditionally, uh, everybody knows what, what the signs of that are, right? Your, your heart stops beating, you stop breathing, uh, your body changes color, um, what rigor mortis, it stiffens, you know, we know what a corpse looks like. Um, beginning in the 1960s, uh, a group of physicians at Harvard began to propose new criteria for determining death. And the basis of that criteria uh, was different than it had ever been historically. And that new criteria, or the neurological criteria, has developed over time. And it's now gotten to the point where this Uniform Law Commission, which is essentially a group of attorneys that are appointed by states to draft model legislation that's often adopted by states, um, they now were very close to even loosening the definition of death to the point where somebody who is comatose uh, could be declared uh, dead. And what that would effectively do is uh, make it easier to kill people or to declare them dead. Um, And that is really concerning because we have to understand that, you know, human life is a continuum from conception till natural death. And what we need is coherence in unity in the definition of death, not uh, continuing to loosen the criteria to make it easier to declare people dead
1: so what's it, what about their supposed supposedly non Protestant uh, nonpartisan approach what happened to that
3: yeah so you know the the, the the way it's marketed on their website I think is really deceiving and I just want to I just want to uh, give people just an example of what I mean here so shortly after uh, this proposal to loosen the criteria of death was defeated. The American Academy of Neurology updated their guidelines. And in the intro to this document, this document's called Pediatric and Adult Brain Death or Death by Neurological Criteria Consensus Guideline. And this is what they say. I just want to read this, this one sentence, because I think this really says a lot. This is what the, the, the committee says. Because of the lack of high-quality evidence on the subject, a novel, evidence-informed formal consent process was used. So what they're telling everybody there, Teresa, is that they don't have the scientific evidence to support this. Yeah, yeah. They don't have a signed objective scientific basis to say that these people are actually dead. So... What they're doing is they're hypothesizing, they're playing God, they're making assumptions, um, and there are a lot of motives which go into wanting to declare somebody dead. Some of it is, you know, the culture of death, which John Paul taught us a lot about, and we have to realize that the culture of death isn't just at the beginning of life, it's also at the end of the life. Of life with euthanasia, right. You look at what Canada is doing with assisted suicide and mm-hmm. even euthanizing children in some cases, and now, um, you know, you have other motives as well, and and the other motives can be, you know, it makes people uh, able to give certain organs like the heart that they wouldn't otherwise be able to give. So it can promote, even though uh organ donation can be uh, a, a life-saving gift to a person, the, the ends don't justify the means. That right. the person has to actually be dead, and so the the problem that we have now is that. Uh, they just keep loosening the criteria, liberalizing it, liberalizing it, making it easier and easier. And um, There's a real concern that this is this is uh, advancing the culture of death, and this is not going to uh, protect vulnerable patients at the end of life.
1: Talking with Michael Vaca, director of Ministry of Bioethics and Membership Experience with the Crisis Medicus Foundation. But who's behind this? There have to be different organizations. Pushing this, and also the dollar is behind it because it's definitely a money thing. If you can kill people sooner, you can save money. I mean, let's just be honest with that, right?
3: Right. Well, I mean, and we have to we have to understand too that that you know the business of organ donation is a multi billion dollar business, right? And so mm-hmm. there's the financial incentives. The organ procurement organizations make a lot of money. There's a lot of financial incentives there. Uh, it's also the case that um, you know many times. Uh, there's a perception that there's such a thing as a life not worth living, which as Catholics and in the natural law we know is never the case, that human life is a gift from God, it's precious, and it's not the job of medical professionals, Teresa, to determine whose life is worth living. It's their job to provide medical expertise to try to preserve, to try to cure, to try to heal, to try to carry out, uh, you know, what our Lord does in the divine position in the gospels when he heals people. Um, that's really the role. And if they can't heal, they, would be honest about that and they do what they can, right. um, to mitigate pain and suffering. But we know that that suffering is redemptive, that our Lord ultimately is going to use it all for, for the good of souls. And that what we need to do is, um, promote a culture of life uh, and make sure that every patient receives the appropriate care, and nobody is hastily declared dead when they're still alive. Um, you know, if you have a beating heart, if you are evidencing signs of life, um, they shouldn't
1: be declaring you dead. Right. Now, how much pressure, should I say, or influence does the Uniform Law Commission have on state laws? I think a lot of us probably wouldn't even realize that this organization is there having a lot of influence.
3: Yeah, so what it is, is, uh, it's advisory. So if they, if they draft legislation, they propose it to the states. The states themselves have to adopt it. They could modify it. They could change it. Uh, so it, it is true. They're not, uh, you know, they're, they're just an advisory body. However, that being said, they carry a lot of weight because if the ULC, the Uniform Law Commission adopts something, it gets proposed to the state legislatures, and many state legislatures, you know, that don't necessarily want to, you know, sort of speak. Uh, uh, they don't want to do all the the background work to investigate it. They will take what the Uniform Law Commission has said, and they will use that as their state law. It becomes the kind of default state law that a lot of states will adopt. Um, so what they what they're doing is uh, significant, and the fact they almost succeeded in it. Um, and shortly after they failed, the American Academy of Neurology basically did exactly what they were trying to do legally, which is loosen the criteria for determining death. And specifically, Teresa, I'll, I'll tell you the specifics is, it used to be that, uh, you had to have under the, uh, under the, uh, Uniform Determination of Death Act, which has been adopted in every single state, it used to be that used to have uh, irreversible uh, damage to your brain, right? So your brain is, is not functioning, and it's irreversible. It can't be reversed.
1: So how many, in terms of the breakdown, because this organization, the ULC, is made up of judges, legislators, legislative staff, law professors, lawyers. In terms of the breakdown, do we know how many people? Is there a balance there of, of, of pro-lifers? I mean, are, are, are people involved in this on any level?
3: So so we ha- the reason why uh the reason why this measure to loosen the criteria for death failed is exactly because there were some wonderful pro life faithful people, a minority, a very small minority within the ULC that worked to defeat this measure and they didn't have the votes necessary to do it this time. But as we know, Teresa in the culture of death, right, if they don't succeed, they come back, they come back, they come back. So I think it's important that that people know that, you know, when people, most people hear about death, you know, they don't imagine that they're making it easier and easier to declare people dead, but that's exactly what's happening.
0: So what can we do? So our Lord says,
3: you know, discern the signs of the times. So I think one one thing is is to, you know, pray. Pray that, you know, human life would be respected from conceptual to natural death. But in the second place, um, really educate yourself and your loved ones. So, you know, our Lord says in the gospel, "The uh, innocent is doves, but wise is servants. Mm-hmm. And the church tells us we have to discern the signs at the time. So we need to be aware. For example, you know, this is a very basic example, but as an example, when people go to renew their driver's license, they often ask them, "Do you want to be an organ donor?" What they don't tell you is that your heart may still be beating at the time that they extract your organs.
1: Minor detail, right? Minor detail yeah. that
3: they just, mm-hmm. just happen to happen yeah. to leave out. And a lot of people, you know, and then they, a lot of people think, "Oh, well, this is such a wonderful thing, and I'm saving somebody's life." And they appeal to their emotions, and they get the person all, you know, they get the heart on their license, and they think it's such a wonderful thing and the person has no idea what they're signing up for. Right. They don't have informed consent and people need to be aware. People need to our eyes need to be opened as Christians to not to be fearful because our Lord, you know, will protect us, but to be aware we live in a culture that doesn't respect human life. Right. We live amongst people who, you know, some of which are well-intentioned, some of which are not, but but our obligation is to is to see everything through the eyes of Christ.
1: The Lord will protect us, but He also gave us brains and <laughs> and people right. like you and organizations like you to help protect us, so we can we can be the Lord's hands and feet. We're talking with Michael Vata, Vaca, excuse me, with the Christ Medicus Foundation about some alarming news regarding the Uniform Law Commission. So, is there anything pending right now? I mean, in terms of things that we should really should be concerned so about.
3: So they they. they you know, one thing one thing to be aware of is that um, you know that will likely come back. This this effort to loosen the criteria of death is not going away. It's going to continue to be prevalent. I think to really educate, and you know, I want to encourage people to do is really educate themselves um, to understand. Um, doesn't mean you have to, you know, uh, you have to go into the the medical journals or anything like that but just to just to understand there's some really clear explanations of what's going on um, and just to understand in a very concise way that your life your family's life, even if it doesn't affect you now, it could be impacted by this, and we want to make sure that people know that you know there is an attempt to promote euthanasia. We know this has been going on for a long time, but it's accelerating, and now that we have this. You know, Proposition Three in Michigan.
1: Oh please, don't even get me uh, we started. We understand
3: that it's going to extend, right? It's not going to stop it. Oh. Michael, warm. we're out of time. There's Give time us a website,
1: real quick, for the uh, Christ Medicus Foundation. So it's ChristMedicus dot org,
3: and then there's the Healthcare Civil Rights Task Force website as well, HealthcareCivilRightsTaskForce dot
1: org. Mike, God bless you for your work. Thanks, this very informative discussion. Scary but informative things we need to know. We'll be right back.